Welcome back to History Plus True Crime Uncovered, a new podcast series all about historical stories, people, and places. Disclaimer, some content in this episode may be sensitive to some listeners. Discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. On this episode, I'm going to be discussing multiple women who were brought forward to justice, some convicted and some not. When the subject of murderers and serial killers comes up, it's usually men who are mentioned. People like Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, but few people can mention more than one or two notorious female killers. Some killed for love, some for money, but most were just absolutely insane and sadistic. Let's start today's episode with the first known female serial killer with the most victims possibly disputed at 650 plus victims the hungarian countess elizabeth bathory is said to have murdered hundreds of girls and bathed in their blood to keep herself beautiful but is there any truth in the gory story or is it just a malicious lie In the first decade of the 17th century, some disturbing claims swirled around the kingdom of Hungary, of young girls' disappearances, of torture, and of murder. At the center of all of them was one woman accused of wanton cruelty and sadism, a countess named Elizabeth Bathory. Seemingly, she targeted poor girls from the local villages either by kidnapping or luring them to her many castles with the promise of work. Nothing was initially done about this, however, not least since the victims were mere peasants, while Bathory was wealthy, intelligent, and powerful. So who was Elizabeth Bathory? She was born on August 7, 1560, in Protestant nobility, Her family held dominion over Transylvania, a de facto independent principality within the kingdom, which is modern-day Romania. With her uncle Stephen Bathory ruling as prince, as well as a king of Poland and a grand duke of Lithuania. Despite the accusations against her, this birthright meant that Bathory remained at liberty. At Chatis Castle, her domineering Gothic pile on top of a hillside that had been a wedding present. In 1575, when still a teenager, she had been married to Count Fjernek Nadesi, himself a member of a major aristocratic dynasty who went on to command the Hungarian army in wars against the Ottoman Empire. And the couple had five known children together. It was after Nadesi's death in 1604 that the whispers and fears regarding Bathory began to proliferate. That was also when her heinous crimes, torture and murder, intensified. Bathory, it was said, took pleasure in a catalog of gruesome acts, stabbing victims under the fingernails with needles, cutting, burning, even biting their flesh, beating and starving them to death, leaving them outside to freeze, or covering them with honey so that they would be attacked by insects. It was said that she had a purpose-built torture chamber and that she associated with witches. Still, It was only after the allegations suggested that her victims had started to include young noble girls that they were taken into custody. Bathory supposedly invited daughters of the gentry to attend a form of finishing school at her castles. Finishing being the operative word. So how many girls did Elizabeth Bathory kill? The Count Palatine of Hungary, Gorgi Thurzo was ordered to investigate and he took hundreds of witnesses' statements. He reached the conclusion that Bathory had killed at least 80 girls, although that that may have been a fraction of the total number, which is said to have been more than 300. 
On December 29, 1610, Thurzo had Bathory and four of her servants arrested. Her accomplices confessed and were put on trial, with three being executed and the last imprisoned for life, but she never stood trial for her crimes. Her noble status and the scandal that could have ensued convinced Thurzo to have her confined within the Chatis castle instead. Confined in the castle, reportedly in rooms that had been completely walled up with small slits to allow food to be passed through, Bathory sought out the final few years of her life. She was found dead aged 54 on August 21st, 1614. If everything said about Bathory was true, then she certainly deserves her reputation as the most prolific female serial killer in history. That is the title bestowed upon her by Guinness World Records. Today, she is also remembered essentially as a vampire since a part of her legacy is that she would drink the blood of her victims as a mean of preserving her youth. For that, she has sometimes been referred to as Countess Dracula. So this begs the question, was Elizabeth Bathory innocent or guilty? There's another possibility. Bathory was innocent and herself a victim of obscene accusations by those wishing to get rid of her or seize her money and lands. And it is from those machinations that her terrifying reputation grew. To this day, the most notorious detail about Bathory is that she actually bathed in the blood of virgins in a bid for eternal life, but that was an addition to her legend more than a century after her death. Recent scholarship has suggested that political rivalries, familial greed, and pervasive misogyny helped fuel the many rumors instigating her arrest. Her sons-in-law looked to take control of her estates, while the Hungarian king owed Bathory a significant debt, so wasted no time in having that expunged. Most of Thurzo's witness statements, it turned out, were not based on first-hand information. Her servants' confessions had been extracted under torture, and the huge death toll was said to have been based on a list Bathory kept but was never found. The truth remains far from certain. Complaints about Bathory's cruelty and violent proclivities had come years before her arrest after all, and not from a rival but a Lutheran minister. It seems at least plausible that she was guilty of a degree of sadistic behavior. A callous treatment of the lower classes, for example, is not entirely mistaken belief that her noble status protected her. To maintain that she tortured, brutalized, and murdered hundreds of girls, let alone that she performed acts that could be described as vampiric, is quite another matter. In sticking with European ladies, I'm moving on to a woman known for poisoning, Mary Ann Cotton, also known as Britain's first serial killer. For nearly a decade in the mid-Victorian era, Mary Ann Cotton poisoned a string of her husbands for their insurance money, as well as anyone else who got in their way, including 11 of her own children. In 1872, the widow, Mary Ann Cotton, wanted to marry for the fifth time. Her previous husbands had almost all died under mysterious circumstances, and she was forced to watch over her seven-year-old stepson, Charles Edward Cotton, whose care now prevented her from remarrying. Cotton eerily quipped, quote, I won't be troubled long, 
end quote. And then young Charles died. Suspicious of the timing, the London police opened an investigation and an autopsy discovered arsenic in the little boy's stomach. It was then revealed that Charles wasn't the first to die in Cotton's care. Of her four husbands, three died under suspicious circumstances, including many of Cotton's own children. It soon became clear that police were dealing with a serial poisoner. This is the harrowing story of Mary Ann Cotton, Britain's first serial killer. Born in 1832 in Durham County, England, Mary Ann Cotton worked as a nurse and a dressmaker before she married William Mowbray in 1852. But in 1856, the young family had experienced tragedy when four of their five children died of gastric fever. Mowbray then purchased a life insurance policy to cover himself and their three surviving children in the event that he passed away. Then, in the 1860s, Mowbray's worst fear came true when he and two of his children passed away from the same fever. Cotton collected the insurance money, left her surviving child with her mother, and married a man named George Ward. Less than a year later, he was also dead, and Cotton received yet another insurance payout. But Cotton didn't remain a widow for very long. In 1867, she married for the third time. His name was James Robinson, and she pressured him to take out a life insurance policy as well, but he refused, particularly after four of his own children died. The marriage ended and Robinson escaped with his life. Her next husband, who she married in 1870, wasn't so lucky. As she collected his insurance money, she became pregnant with the fifth man's child, but then he died under suspicious circumstances. All told, Marianne Cotton killed around 21 people, including 11 of her own children. But how did she do it? Cotton was shrewd in her crimes. She cleverly used arsenic, which mimicked the symptoms of gastric fever. And before the 1830s, arsenic poisoning was largely undetectable until chemist James Marsh developed a test to detect it. Additionally, arsenic poisoning was a common occurrence in the Victorian era, where people came into contact with the poison on a daily basis. Children's toys and even wallpaper contained arsenic. Even baby carriages contained it. In 1858, when Marianne Cotton was still married to her first husband, 15 people died from eating candies that accidentally contained arsenic in what is now known as the Bradford Sweet Poisoning Incident. As a result, accidental poisonings did occur, but with over 20 suspicious deaths under Cotton's roof, the poisonings didn't look like an accident, and as the investigation would show, they certainly were not. Quote, a fearful suspicion, end quote, reported the headline of the North Wales Chronicle in 1872. Mary Ann Cotton, a widow, is in custody at West Auckland, charged with having poisoned her stepson aged eight years. It is said that the poisoner, who is comparatively a young woman, has had three husbands and 15 children, and that they, as well as two lodgers, died under her roof. Cotton's trial began in 1873 after she gave birth to her last child in prison. During the trial, the prosecution laid out the evidence that Charles Cotton died of gastric fever due to his stepmother's poison tea. Cotton's defense argued that Charles must have died from arsenic in the wallpaper, but what of the nearly two dozen other dead? 
The police had exhumed the body of Cotton's lover, who died shortly before her stepson. They found unmistakable symptoms of poison. But Marianne Cotton contained her, maintained her innocence. Quote, I am not guilty. I have been misled. End quote. She wrote in one note. The jury spent one hour deliberating before finding her guilty nonetheless. On March 24, 1873, Marianne Cotton, Britain's first reported serial killer, was hanged for her crimes. A journalist described the scene, quote, Mrs. Cotton, who scowled fiercely and with an air of defiance at the crowd and who muttered constantly but indistinctly, took her place upon the drop with remarkable composure. The wretched woman was launched into eternity. End quote. In 1998, a former FBI profiler claimed, quote, There are no female serial killers. End quote. He couldn't have been more wrong, as Mary Ann Cotton clearly showed, but she wasn't the only femme fatale for modern history. There were also killers like Elizabeth Bathory. Uh, previously mentioned, and Amelia Dreyer, and so many more. Today, psychologists point out that female serial killers typically have different targets and motives from male serial killers. Like Marianne Cotton, female serial killers target people in their own families, kill for money, and also are more likely to use weapons like poison. Marianne Cotton was only officially convicted of the death of her stepson Charles, yet her total number of victims may have been as high as 21 people. Although Cotton never had the notoriety of Jack the Ripper, who began killing a decade after Marianne Cotton's execution, her death toll was almost certainly higher, making her one of Britain, Britain's most horrifying murderers in history. Next is a somewhat lesser known female killer, uh, sticky, still sticking with <laughs> European, um, the mystery and murder in Paris, the infamous Madame de Brevignures. And I apologize, I am not French, and uh, <laughs> I haven't taken French since high school, so I may mispronounce some of the, these names or words. On July 17, 1676, Marie-Madeleine Marguerite d'Aubray, Marquis de Bourvignes, was tortured and forced to drink 16 pints of water, after which, perhaps surprisingly, she confessed to a series of crimes, the main being the poisoning of her father and two brothers for financial gain. If this was not bad enough, it seems almost certain that Madame de Bourvignes Sorry. In a macabre practice run, poisoned around 50 poor people, either in hospitals or under the auspicious of her charity work amongst the underprivileged. She was born in Paris in 1630, the daughter of Drew d'Aubray, a civil lieutenant of Paris. The family was wealthy, noble, and well-known, and Marie was described as pretty with an endearing air of childlike innocence. This childlike innocence contradicts other reports that she had been sexually abused at the age of seven and had an incestuous relationship with one of her brothers when she was 10. When she was 21, she married Antoine Gobelin, Marquis de, Bremen, de Brevignures. Although her dowry was not substantial, 
and her husband, a commanding officer of a regiment, was well set up financially, this was a temporary state of affairs. The Marquis was an invariable gambler, and he was soon in debt. Their marriage was a very open one, both having affairs, but it wasn't until Marie was introduced to Jean-Baptiste Godin de Saint-Croix that she blatantly and scandalously flouted their affair, lavishing her own money on Saint-Croix to finance their extravagant lifestyles. Her husband by then had fled France to escape his creditors. Marie's father, dismayed by the scandal of his errant daughter was causing, affected a lettreur de cachet, again, I'm not French, <laughs> signed by the king, and St. Croix was arrested and spent a year in the Bastille, which is uh, France's like prison, like main prison. And it is there that the story really begins. St. Croix's cellmate was a certain Exoli, an Italian poisoner who shared his knowledge of poisons with St. Croix. On his release, St. Croix plotted with Marie not only the poisoning of her father, but also her siblings. The poison she used was arsenic-based and was reputed to have been invented by Julia Tafana, where I spoke about on a previous episode, who was an infamous Italian poisoner and was consequently known as Aqua Tafana. Um, just for a recap, Julia Tafana was a professional poisoner described as beautiful. She had from an early age spent her time in apothecaries, eventually developing her own poison. She could have been the first extreme feminist as she sold her poisons to women with abusive husbands and then arrested in a church in Rome and tortured, confessed to killing 600 men with her poison. Tofana was executed in 1659. It is always possible, however, that Julia was passed down uh, the Tofana recipe from her mother, who was executed in Palermo in 1635, accused of murdering her husband. Marie and St. Crow's original plan was to poison Marie's father. It was now that Marie set up her own small laboratory experimenting with strengths and dosages of arsenic and probably mercury, testing them on her maid and the sick in the nearby Hotel de Du. For eight months, Marie remained with her father on his estate, cooking for him and acting as the doting daughter, administering small doses of the poison, hoping the results would be undetectable. When Drew de Aubrey died in September night uh excuse me September 1666 the cause of death was recorded as natural and no autopsy was performed however sharing her inheritance with her two brothers and sister did not make Marie as rich as she had envisioned her next step was by now predictable but was to cause her eventual downfall she hired a young man named Le Cose and placing him in the household of her younger brother paid him handsomely to continue her work. Both brothers had their food laced with poison by La Crozet, the first dying on July 17, 1670, and the second three weeks later. Although traces of arsenic were found in the autopsies, Marie was not formally a suspect because being in Paris at the time of their deaths provided her with the perfect alibi. Her remaining sister, understandably, had all her food tested for poison before she consumed a mouthful. St. Crew, 
who had not yet benefited from Maria's inheritance and now financially ruined, had kept a detailed diary of Marie's exploits, her love letters to him, two promissory notes from her, and the final ironical nail in her coffin, vials of the poison that they had used to murder both her father and her brothers. These were left in a box with the damning note, quote, to be opened in the event of death prior to that of Madame de Bourvignures, end quote. Of course, the sudden death of St. Crewe had been unexpected. The common belief was that he was still experimenting with poisonous gases and had fatally inhaled the fumes by accident, and Marie could not have foreseen the consequences, both of St. Crewe leaving no will and the incriminating box being opened on his demise. La Cousset was soon arrested and confessed to everything under torture before being sentenced to death. Marie Madeleine Marguerite d'Aubray, Marquis de Brevignelers, had already fled to England and, th- and then also to the Netherlands, trying to avoid extradition, but was finally arrested and returned to Paris to stand trial on April 29, 1676. On July 17, 1676, Madame de Brevignelers was executed in the Palais de Grieve, now the Palais de Hotel de Ville. I, I must, I mean, that's how you pronounce it. She was beheaded and then thrown into a pyre before her remains were thrown into the CN. It was recorded that Marie dressed only in a skirt, shirt, and hood and watched by a huge, excited crowd of onlookers had climbed the scaffold with great dignity and courage. However, Madame de Brevignelier's death was not in the least the end of French scandals involving poison. It was only the beginning. What was to follow in 1677 to 1682 was not only to completely eclipse Marie's crimes, but also to cause a scandal involving prominent members of the aristocracy that reverberated into the very heart of the court of King Louis. The notoriety of Madame de Brevignelier's trial and execution sent shivers of suspicion throughout the nobility. Other suspicious deaths were questions and rumors of poisoning spread like wildfire. The king himself became alarmed and forced some of his servants to be his tasters. When Magdalene de de la Grange was arrested on charges of forgery and murder in 1677, she immediately appealed to the Marquis of Louvois, claiming that she had information of other crimes of great importance. Louvois reportedly reported directly to King Louis and to the chief of police. The subsequent investigations led to numerous accusations of murder, witchcraft, and black masses. Fortune tellers and alchemists were rounded up, those suspected of selling what was popularly known as inheritance powders were tortured into divulging the names of their clients who had bought poison either for their husbands or to rid themselves of rivals in the royal court. The midwife Catherine de Chaise Mombizin, commonly known as Lavoisin, was arrested in 1679, implicated numerous members of the royal court. These included the Comtesse de Soissons and her sister, the Duchess de Bolion, the Duke of Luxembourg, and perhaps the most troubling of all, 
Athlianesis de Montesan, the king's mistress. I think that's supposed to say Montespan. Um, she was a, a super um, well-known mistress of the king. Levazan claimed that de Montespan, yep, purchased aphrodisiacs and performed black masses in order to keep the king's favors over other rivals in the court. He was sentenced to death for witchcraft and poisoning was burned at the stake in February 1680. The fallout for what was known as the L'Affaire de Poisons lasted until 1682. During that time, 34 people had been sentenced to death for poisoning and witchcraft, two had died under torture, and many courtiers were either disinherited or went into exile. King Louis, not wanting to risk more publicity about the scandal, which reached into the very heart of his royal court, abolished the court in 1682. The police chief, Rainier, stated on the abolition of the court, quote, the enormity of their crimes proved their safeguard, end quote. Marie Madeleine de Bourvignes' crimes of simple greed had far more reaching consequences than she or the court of King Louis could have ever imagined. Up next, I'm going to Canada this time, and then we will move on to the U.S., but I'm doing a different take on this story because there are many, many inaccuracies and many things we don't know. So this is a historical enigma, the real life Grace Marks versus Elias Grace. In the 1960s, Margaret Atwood read, wrote a book called Life in the Clear Clearings versus the Bush in 19th century account of pioneer life by Susanna Moody, an English immigrant to Canada. A chapter of the book is devoted to the provincial lunatic asylum in Toronto and to Moody's visit to the violent ward to meet the celebrated murderess Grace Marks. Grace Marks was a Canadian maid who in 1843, when only 16, was convicted with fellow servant James McDermott of murdering their master, Thomas Kinnear, and his housekeeper, lover, Nancy Montgomery. Kinnear had been shot in the left side of his chest, while Nancy Montgomery was struck in the head with an axe and then strangled. A post-mortem revealed that she had been pregnant. The Trial of McDermott and Marks The trial took place in November 1843 and was a great sensation. The newspapers covering the proceedings with appropriate levels of gore and sexual intrigue. On the day of McDermott's evidence, so many spectators packed into the courtroom that some alarm was created by a report that the floor of the courtroom was giving way, and a rush was made for the door. During the proceedings, Marx and McDermott blamed each other for instigating the murders. They were both convicted of Kinnear's death, but only McDermott was ultimately hanged. Before he went to the scaffold, McDermott insisted that Grace had strangled Nancy Montgomery herself with a piece of white cloth. So was she a murderess or a madwoman? There was so much discussion at the time as to whether Grace Marks was in fact guilty. She is said to have displayed little emotion during the trial and according to newspaper reports, arrived at court wearing clothes that she had stolen from the dead Nancy Montgomery. However, some believed she was innocent and the victim of 
McDermott's lies. Others believe she was insane. She gave three conflicting accounts of the murder, while McDermott gave two. In Mark's last confession, published in the Star and Transcript, she said that after Montgomery had fired McDermott, he had he had been determined to kill her in Kinnear. He had made me promise to insist him, Mark said, and agreed to do so. Mark's claimed that she had tried to run away from the house after Kinnear was killed and that McDermott had tried to shoot her. It's not clear why Marks was sent to the lunatic asylum. It was suggested variously that she was possessed by the consciousness of her dead friend, Mary Whitney, or had some kind of personality disorder. Another theory was that Marks had in fact died and that Mary Whitney had adopted her identity. According to Moody, quote, the fearful hauntings of her brain had terminated in madness, end quote. She described her as a lighted up with the fire of insanity and glowing with a hideous and fiend-like merriment. The asylum superintendent, however, believed that Grace Marks was faking it. In 1852, she was transferred back to Kingston Penitentiary, where the miniseries of Alias Grace was filmed. The records show that she was suspected of having become pregnant during her time at the asylum. As Atwood points out in the afterword to her book, Alias Grace, the men with the easiest access to patients were the doctors. After almost 30 years in detention, Marks was pardoned and moved to New York State. After that, the paper trail runs out. The Servant Girl to Elias Grace Atwood would mull over Grace Marks for many years. In 1970, she published The Journals of Susanna Moody, A Cycle of Poems. In 1974, she wrote the screenplay for the film The Servant Girl, also based on Susanna Moody's account. In 1979, she wrote a version for the stage entitled Grace. However, by the time she wrote Alias Grace, Atwood had changed her opinion of Grace Marks, having read a variety of sources and realized that Moody had entirely invented parts of her account. Quote, Moody said at the outset of her account that she was writing Grace Marks' story from memory, and as it turns out, her memory was no better than most. End quote. Atwood never reached a conclusion about Grace, noting that the true character of the historical Grace Marks remains an enigma, hence the subtly and slipperiness of the novel. In the afterword to Elias Grace, Atwood notes that although she struck, stuck to the facts, where facts existed she felt free to invent details to fill in the gaps between irreconcilable versions of the murders at an interview at the south bank center in october atwood recounted how she had seen in the inspector's minute book the liberation questionnaire that grace had completed upon leaving kingston penitentiary confirming she could write one of the questions asked of all outgoing prisoners was quote what has been the general cause of your misfortunes and what has been the immediate cause of the crime for which you have been sent to the penitentiary, end quote. Mark's reply is typically non-committal. It reads, having been employed in the same house with a villain. Now moving on to the U.S. I'm going to start in chronological order. Um, I have two more cases left i actually think i'm going to do a part three to this um at a later time but let's start off with madame delphine lalori 
The legend of Madame Delphine Lalori has grown into a pop culture phenomenon, and like most things in pop culture, the line between fact and fiction has been faded. There is no denying that Lalori was a fascinating character in New Orleans history. But was this complicated woman really the femme fatale that your ghost tour guide would lead you to believe? Or is it that she's just one of history's powerful and misunderstood women of the South? I would have to say this is probably one of those cases that is comes to mind when you think about um, U.S. serial killers. I would consider LaLaurie a serial killer. So who was this person? She was born Marie Delphine McCarty on March 19th. 1787 to a wealthy family in New Orleans. The McCarty men had military backgrounds, most were landowners, and her father, Louis Bethormy de McCarty, was knighted as the Chevalier of the Royal Military Order of St. Louis. By 1794, her family had 1,344 acres plantation between birth and independence backing up to St. Claude Avenue and next door to the famously wealthy Count Pierre-Philippe Mandeville de Marjorie. <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. One could safely assume she led a charmed life. Um, just uh, saying that back during this time, um, the U.S. actually didn't own uh, Louisiana or New Orleans. It was po heavily populated by the French and French families. So that's why these names are a little bit <laughs> hard to pronounce. Her mother was known to be quite the hostess. She loved having parties that went into the wee hours of the night. Some nights included jumping into the canal on their property and stealing the clothes and shoes of the male guests, forcing them to go home in bare feet and nightshirts. She loved a good party and a good prank. When Delphine's mother passed away in 1807, her father explored companionship in an untraditional, though popular manner. The Chevalier Louis Bartholomew de McCarty had a long-term relationship with a free quadrant, Sophie Manassente. In 1815, Sophie gave birth to a daughter, Delphine M.S.C. McCarty. The child's godparents were Delphine and her brother, Louis. Records show that quite a few of the McCarty men had relationships with free women of color or women of mixed race. Delphine's uncle, Eugene, had a 54-year relationship with a woman of color, Eulani Madaville de Marginet. Yep, the same name as the Count. Eulani was the daughter of an enslaved woman and the Count himself. Eugene and Eulani had seven quadrant children together in what appeared to be a successful union. Eulani must not have cared that Eugene also had children with two other free women of color, five children in fact. New Orleans history tells us of quite a few wealthy Creole men practicing the cohabitation with women of color. Carolyn Merrill Long, Madame LaLaurie, Mistress of the Haunted House. Delphine's father, uncle, cousins, 
and associates contributed to the development of biracial free people of color. These women were referred to in the legal system as a concubine. The Creoles called them menagerie or place. Research proves that there were quite a few women of mixed race who were in relations and had children with the McCarty men. Let that seed germinate a bit as we explore the life of Delphine McCarty LaLaurie. Now let's explore Delphine and her husband. She had several. <laughs> husband number one. She was barely 14 when she married her first husband, the 35-year-old widow Ramon Lopez Yaanglo Delva Candelaria. Sorry, I don't know. <laughs> Spanish. Um, Raymond was an officer of the Spanish crown and in second command to the Louisiana governor. He had also recently lost his wife on the treacherous and cruel voyage from Spain to Louisiana to step into his appointed position. He and Delphine were married by the bishop in a private ceremony on June 11, 1800. Five years later, Ramon made Delphine a mother and a widow at the same time. It seems Ramon wasn't thrilled with the crown perhaps he harbored some bitterness and blame with the death of his wife there's a record of him saying that they were sent over from spain at the worst time of the year had they postponed their voyage one month as he requested his wife's life could have been spared in a less grueling voyage and with the bitterness came a bit of rebellion in his role ramon pissed off Spain for the last time when he opened up the importation of captives directly from Africa, defying the orders that Spain had implemented. The orders prohibited the importation until hostilities had settled and had become a more peaceful environment in the human trafficking trade. It is also speculated that Spain reprimanded him for marrying without permission. The crown he served began shuffling him around the globe removing him from his prominent position after many efforts by way of letter writing and supposedly a visit to the queen by delphine he was pardoned and appointed spanish consul to new orleans under the american administration at this time delphine was pregnant and waiting for him in havana so that they could return to new orleans together Ramon boarded his ship in Bordeaux to make his way back to his expecting wife. On January 11, 1805, his vessel hit a sandbar off the shores of Havana and Ramon was killed. Around the same time, Delphine gave birth to their daughter, Marie Delphine Francisca Borgia Lopez Yaangelo de la Candelaria. The baby girl was named in part after Ramon's dead wife, Delphine stayed in Havana long enough to bury her husband and have her daughter baptized. She then returned to her home in New Orleans, a young widow and mother, to discover that New Orleans was no longer under Spanish or French rule, but now under American ownership. And on to husband number two. The young widow would soon be married again. On Delphine's 20th birthday, March 19, 1807, and just a few weeks after her mother died, she married an older Frenchman and widower, Jean-Paul Blanc. Delphine's mother had divided her estate between her three children. Blanc was a savvy businessman. Perhaps he saw her inheritance as an opportunity. Jean-Paul Blanc had arrived in New Orleans with an agenda. He was a ruthless businessman who had been active in the slave trade as well as politics 
and an associate to the notorious pirate brothers Jean and Pierre Lafayette. Delphine's inheritance of $33,007 made for a wealthy dowry for the marriage to her new husband. Her mother also left her a downtown plantation on the bank of the Mississippi River, 52 slaves and livestock and farm equipment. Her father gifted Delphine and Blanc another plantation property on Charles Street and an additional 20 sorry 26 slaves in today's value her inheritance would be worth over two million dollars blanc went on to purchase a two-story townhome on royal and conti next door to the bank of louisiana where he was the director by 1815 they had had five children the eldest being the daughter from delphine's first husband the family would split their time between the townhome and their plantation delphine and blanc had secured a privileged life for themselves but things are not always as they seem less than a year after the battle of new orleans the 50 year old john blanc passed away delphine just 28 years old was left to settle blanc's estate his estate consisted of debts that totaled over $160,000, over 2.5 million in today's currency in 1816 delphine renounced their community property to the courts and forfeited all their their mutual assets to protect and keep her personal property and assets over the next 10 years delphine auctioned off much of blanc's property including enslaved persons to try and pay off his debts she even purchased one piece of his property herself at auction as well as retaining some of his slaves records show that eight of the enslaved people she now owned died in a span of about five years most were children or women of childbearing age the cause of death are unknown the debt that Blanc left behind could have been depleted LaLaurie's wealth. Delphine had the luck of the Irish, though. It came in the form of morbid and macabre luck. Her father, Chevalier Louis Bartholomew de McCarty, passed away in 1824, leaving his children with a substantial inheritance. His daughter, with a free woman, woman of color, was included in his well. He left her $5,000 and two slaves. And then on to husband number three. When Dr. Louis LaLaurie came into the picture in 1825, Delphine was an experienced and shrewd woman of wealth. LaLaurie arrived from France with a mission to start his physician practice of destroying punches. He was basically a chiropractor straightening crooked backs. And in 1826, one of Delphine's children needed some help being straightened out. Henceforth, the romance began. LaLaurie was an older woman at 38 with two dead husbands, five children, and considerable wealth. One can speculate a few scenarios around their blossoming relationship, but one thing we know for sure is that Madame Delphine became pregnant with Dr. LaLaurie's child out of wedlock. Five months after the birth of their son, Jean-Louis Leonard LaLaurie, 
Dr. LaLaurie and Madame Delphine were at a notary negotiating their marriage contract. Delphine was now worth $66,389.58. Once their property and finances were sorted out, they headed over to St. Louis Cathedral to make it legal in the eyes of the Catholic Church. However, it has been discovered that the date of their marriage was rolled back six months. Having a child out of wedlock would have been frowned upon in their circle of high society. The 40-year-old Delphine was now on her third husband, and the 25-year-old Dr. LaLaurie was a new father in a new country with a very wealthy wife. Archived letters written by friends mentioned that the marriage was not a happy one. They were known to fight, often separate, and then return to each other. Some of these letters began to make early mentions of Delphine's cruelty to her slaves. In 1831, Madame Delphine LaLaurie purchased the lots in Royal and Hospital, now Governor Nichols, which would become the infamous haunted LaLaurie Mansion. But their lavish home in the View Care did not a happy marriage make. On November 16, 1832, Delphine LaLaurie petitioned the courts for separation from the bed and board of her husband. She claimed that LaLaurie had, quote, treated her in such a manner as to render their living together insupportable, end quote. She also claimed that LaLaurie had beaten her in front of witnesses. Five months later, Dr. LaLaurie acquiesced and consented, moving permanently to his newly acquired residence in Plaque Mines Parish. On April 10th, 1834, a fire broke out inside the home Delphine LaLaurie and her estranged husband owned. Through the smoke and the flames, an ugly truth was exposed and the suspicions confirmed. The LaLaurie Mansion, a beautiful home, held ugly secrets. Just as within any scandal, the stories and establishments grew over time, but the immediate reports and eyewitness accounts are horrifying and atrocious. Seven slaves were rescued from deplorable conditions, their bodies covered with scars and loaded with chains. They were taken out on stretchers and delivered to safety at the Calabido. While a mob proceeded to destroy the furnishings of the home in outrage. Judge Jacques Francois Conage was a neighbor of the LaLauries and one of the first to arrive at the fire. Some of the early arrivals began to help the LaLauries transfer their valuables to safekeeping in case the fire started to spread from its originating place in the kitchen or outbuilding. A few of those concerned citizens began to tell judge about the com captive bonds people, prompting the judge to politely ask permission of Dr. LaLaurie to have the slaves removed and taken to safety. It is reported that LaLaurie replied, quote, There are those who would be better employed if they would not if they would attend to their own affairs instead of officiously intermeddling with the concerns of other people, end quote. Now, if that's not a big giant red flag, I don't know what is. <laughs> As the flames began to spread, Judge Campaign gave orders to break down the doors. It was then that the citizens were met with a scene that they could not have been prepared for. Depending on the source, the level of the discovery's gruesomeness varies, but even the tamest of depictions is nothing less than appalling. The mob mentality shifted and people began smashing the contents of the mansion, destroying the LaLaurie's property and belongings no different from the way the LaLaurie's had treated the poor people in their home. The more 
sensationalized they at least sound sensational of uh, the lalori's victims had these poor people horribly mutilated with some suspended by the neck and their extremities stretched and torn judge campaign told another judge that when he arrived he was apprised of their being in one of the apartments some slaves who were chained and were exposed to perish in the conflagration judge capone uh, accompanied by a few other wit uh, citizens discovered two negresses incarcerated whom they liberated one was wearing an iron collar very large and heavy and was changed with chained with heavy irons by the feet and walked with the greatest difficulty that's that's absolutely horrible days after the fire it was reported one of the slaves who had been removed from the residence did not survive and that bones were excavated from the lalori's courtyard it was documented that one set of bones were those of a young slave girl that madame delphine had chased straight out of a window allowing the young girl to fall to her death and then buried her on their property there were opposing reports printed as well as discrediting the death and bones so what do we believe as unbelievable as the scene was there are records of letters written years prior by john boys stating that delphine had been brought before the criminal court for the barbarous treatment of her slaves but was absolved for lack of accusers willing to testify that they had seen her beating the slaves in the book madame lalori mistress of the haunted house carolyn marrow long does a wonderful job in presenting all of the recorded statements as well as the media claims and articles in regards to the atrocities that were found inside the lalori mansion she delivers to the reader the different point of views of the time she points out where the lines of fact can be linked by connecting prior accusations and concerns how much is accurate and which are embellishments we'll never know but what is hard to deny is the multiple sources and eyewitness accounts of the cruel and inhumane conditions that the Lalories kept their enslaved persons in. And it should be noted that she was never accused of mistreating her bonds people until after she married Dr. Louis Lalori. Perhaps she began to take her unhappy marriage out on her servants, or maybe she just didn't care about concealing it any longer. Madame Delphine Lalori did have one loyal servant on her staff. This we do know for sure. Amid the mayhem and flames, her enslaved coachman brought her carriage around and Delphine stepped into it with complete confidence. The mob was stunned initially. It is said that the angry citizens tried desperately to hold the horses and snatch her from the carriage. Still, the coachman used his whip and plunged the horses forward, escaping the crowd. He drove the escape route and delivered her to a shoe waiting at the docks of the new orleans navigation company on lake poncherin where she boarded and fled when the coachman arrived back the determined crowd met the carriage and began to destroy the carriage and stab the horses to death just as stories surrounding her cruel and heinous actions towards her slaves has circulated so have the speculations and rumors on where exactly she ended up it turns out an american poet william colin bryant published a journal that uncovers the mystery for us bryant wrote that he set sail for france out of new york on june 24 1834 he mentions one of his passengers a pretty looking french woman a madame lalori he went on to describe the atrocities that she had been accused of 
that she had committed such horrible cruelties upon her slaves last winter in new orleans adding that her home had caught fire in attempts to extinguish the blaze it was discovered that several negroes were confront confined and some chained in painful postures and others horribly wounded and scarce alive madame lalori's reputation had made it across the country bryant also wrote that delphine spent time in mobile before making the journey out of new york with her husband to his native country delphine and louis eventually ended up in paris with delphine's children coming over for extended stays louis lived off of delphine's wealth but grew tired of her complaining and left her in paris as he made his way to havana shortly after more of delphine's family moved to paris where they all occupied homes in the first arrondissement she had her family back together Delphine McCarty LaLaurie died in Paris on December 7, 1849. The prefecture of the Department of Sienne reports she expired at her domicile, but does not specify the cause of death. Letters between her and her children talk about a lingering illness she had been suffering from. It's safe to speculate that she probably succumbed to whatever this mystery illness was. Even in death, rumors swirled around Delphine. In 1941, claims were made that a mysterious epitaph plate was discovered in St. Louis No. 1 Cemetery in the weathered and corroding plate had the words Madame LaLaurie, nay, Marie Delphine McCarthy, Decidity, I'm assuming that means died in paris december 7 1842 records in paris show that on december 9 1849 marie delphine mccady was presented for burial and she was interred in the tome of the nada and noel families but her body was exhumed on january 7 1851 to be sent back to new orleans the date on the plate found in St. Louis Number 1 Cemetery didn't have the incorrect date. The number 2 was so worn that it was misread. Now, does Delphine LaLaurie haunt her mansion? In New Orleans, one of the most famous ghost stories revolves around Madame Delphine LaLaurie. Her infamous and majestic home on Royal Street has been the center of French Quarter attention for over two centuries. The typical ghost story talks about her abusing her slaves in the atrocious conditions that they were found in during the famous fire. The stories have grown throughout the years with the torture turning into the most violent acts of human cruelty imaginable. There are tales of Madame LaLaurie's slaves having holes drilled through their skulls and their limbs being broken and reset in unnatural positions, and after much research, we can be utterly confident that LaLaurie absolutely committed heinous crimes against the enslaved persons in her possessions, but the outlandish tales that are now out there sound a bit more like another horrible woman in history. A lot of pain and trauma went on at that address, so it would make sense that there would be some old energies still stuck in their cycle of grief and hurt. But know this, the next time you hear someone tell of Madame LaLaurie drilling holes in their slaves' brains, or you watch another campy television show reacting Delphine's psychopathic life events that, you nev- that never actually happened, you are allowed to roll your eyes. So... It's really up for interpretation. 
on if this property is truly haunted and what you believe in and friends i think that's going to be it for today i had one more story to go over but i think i'm going to do a part three and just roll with it so that these uh podcast episodes aren't super super long for you but that'll be all for today as always leave a review leave me a comment um tell me what you're thinking of these episodes give me a request for future episodes i'd love to do those Um, but otherwise have a great day until next time